The subject I wanted to talk about this morning is the question of identity. Trying to figure out the question, who am I? And I think it's safe to say that we're living in a time now where many of us have really lost our sense of identity. A lot of us really don't know how to address the question, who am I? We don't know the answer to that anymore. Psychology Today says that this is a problem many, many people face because many of us assume that this is something we address maybe as, a, as adolescents or maybe young adults when we you know, try to find ourselves or whatever that may be, and then we just sort of let it go, and it generally remains for many people an unanswered question. It was really interesting to me. I, just yesterday, I was watching a news program, and uh, they were talking about the end of the year, 2017, and they were, they were discussing what they felt was the big issue that was going on, or that, that the biggest struggle that we faced um, in 2017, and the answer given by, that everyone seemed to agree with on this panel was the same, that in America we seem to be having an identity crisis. Many people are struggling. We don't know what the answer to the question of what does it mean to be an American. And so this is, they said, is bleeding out into every aspect, not just in government, but in education. I've experienced it in law enforcement. Um, it's, it's pervasive all over the place, and the interesting comment that was made, and like I say, this was just yesterday, the guy said, this is really a symptom to a much bigger problem. He says, I think the biggest issue is that it's an individual problem, that many of us don't know who we are, and if you don't know that basic aspect, how do you tackle the other issues? And like I say, it's, it, it's, he, saw, he, he described it as a crisis. Now, as you know, Matt had a, a long series fairly recently titled I Am, and it, he ba we based a small group around it trying to discuss the nature and the character of God as revealed in Scripture. And then from there, we went into Why Jesus, the Advent series, where God becomes human for our sake. And as this was going on, I kept thinking, so what does this say about us? What does, does the Christian faith have an answer? Does it have some sort of inroads into this question of identity and who am I? And um, I want to address that, but it's not just for the Christian to answer this question. This is a question that we all people have to address in one way, shape, or form. So I want to try something this morning that may be a little on the ambitious side and possibly a little bit on the foolish side because it is Sunday morning. Um, you know, you, you just haven't been up all that long. But I do want to try to address um, what other religions and possibly um, philosophy, how they address this question because those are the two disciplines that really try to address the question of identity and the question of who, I, who am I. And... Um, you know, it's, it's going to be fairly basic. We're not going to get real deep into it because, you know, I've said in the past that 
to me, philosophy is, studying philosophy is like a, a blind person in a dark room looking for a black cat that doesn't exist. Um, it's a little bit on the ridiculous side, quite honestly. But here's where I want to go with this. If you take any religious or philosophical system, okay, if you take any of them, you're going to find out that those systems are basically rooted or grounded in one of three ways, generally. Some may combine a couple of these or whatever, but they're basically rooted and grounded in one of three ways. Some systems are rooted in thinking, where we are told to engage with certain ideas, get to grips with them. And once you can master and get to grip with these certain ideas, that then will give you the key to unlock the mysteries of life, the universe, and everything else. Some systems are rooted in feeling, the mystical, where we're told to engage with our feelings, reach out, stretch out with our feelings, look for that moment in life that will hope help you make sense of everything else, that moment that's going to help make, you make sense of who you are, why you're here, and everything else. And then there are some systems that are rooted in doing, more the pragmatic, where we're told to do certain things, behave in certain ways, act out various things, and that then, if we can do these certain things, that then will help figure out these questions of who you are, why you're here, and again, hopefully be able to provide a framework to help address and answer some of these big questions. Now, again, if we were in some sort of philosophy class, we'd be talking about the epistemological systems, the existential systems, and the pragmatic systems. But we're not in philosophy today, so... Um, so hopefully you're with me. Systems are going to be rooted in thinking, feeling, or doing. Now, some systems try to combine them, or even put all three together. Certain times of Hinduism would do that. They'd say, no, 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 this is a threefold path. It's got to be a combination of a balance of right thinking, right feeling, right doing. If you can do all these types of things, you get to that point of nirvana and you know, bring all this together. But here's where I'm trying to go with this. The Christian faith cannot be reduced to any one or any combination of any of these three things. You see, you cannot become, become a Christian by accepting certain doctrinal beliefs, even though there's nothing more profound than knowing the person of Christ. You cannot become a Christian, or to become a Christian does not require that you have some certain mystical experience, even though there's nothing more thrilling than meeting the person of Christ. And you cannot become a Christian by doing certain things, like reading your Bible, coming to church, tithing. Doing those things aren't going to turn you into a Christian, even though Jesus said that Christians are to be known by what they do. The Christian faith cannot be reduced in any one or even a combination of these things because Jesus did not come into this world to give us a new knowledge of God or to give us some new experience of God or try to tell us to do, how to do certain things to impress God. Jesus Christ came into this world as God 
himself. The Christian faith is not rooted or grounded in thinking, feeling, or doing, but in being. And I'm going to try to explain that and hopefully kind of bring all this together. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to read the book of John, the Gospel of John, recently. But if you haven't done that, I would recommend that you do that because it is incredibly profound. Let's take, for example, systems rooted in thinking. Systems rooted in thinking, as I said, tell us to master certain ideas, get to grips with them. Now, words are revealed thought. It's through my words you know that's what's on my mind. When you're in a conversation, the words that they say to you makes you understand where they're coming from. So words are a type of revealed thought. What is the first thing we read when we read the Gospel of John? We read that the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. A communication to us, not in some abstract thought, but in the person, in a person, the person of Christ. Systems rooted in feeling tell us to engage in the mystical, reach out, stretch out with our feelings, look for that moment of life that's hopefully going to make sense of everything else for us. But Jesus Christ defined life in terms of knowing him. In the book of John, Jesus said, if you do not know me, you will not see life. Full stop. But if you do know me, you will not taste death. Jesus Christ defined life in terms of knowing him. Coming to know him is not some experience in life. Coming to know him is the moment of life itself. I've said this before, you've probably heard me say this, but that Jesus did not come into this world to take bad people and suddenly turn them into good people. That's not the problem. Jesus came into this world to take dead people, spiritually dead people, and make them live. Do you know that kind of life? Have you ever come alive in Christ? Systems rooted in doing tell us to do certain things, behave in a certain way. At one point in John chapter 6, verse 28, the disciples come to Jesus and say, what must we do to do the works that God requires? You'll notice they answer the, ask the question in the plural. And Jesus answers the question in the singular. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. And they look at him and they say, well, wait a minute now. Our forefathers ate manna from heaven. God gave them bread to eat. What are you going to do? What miracle are you going to perform to convince us? And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am. In asking Jesus how to live, they were looking for a path to truth. In asking Jesus what to do, they were looking for a way of life. And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am. All of Christian revelation is summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to me carefully here. You can take any founder of his or her religion, and that religion is going to stay intact. 
You see where I'm coming from? If you were to talk to a Buddhist, for example, and say, look, did the revelation have to come to Buddha, or could it have come to anyone else? Obviously, they're going to argue that it came to Buddha, but they're going to agree that, yeah, it could have come to anyone. We believe it came to Buddha, which is why they call it, I assume, Buddhism. If it had come to Stan, I suppose it would be Stanism or something else like that. I don't know. If you were going to talk to an Islamic theologian, now they're going to be a lot more strong on this, but if you were to say, look, did Allah, was he restricted in his freedom? Was he required and forced to give his revelation to Muhammad, or could it have been anyone else? Obviously they feel Muhammad is the one that got the revelation, but they're not going to say, they're not going to say that Allah was restricted in that. Allah can do whatever he wants, so he could, have, he could have given the revelation to anyone. They just believe it came to Muhammad. You see, you can take any founder out of their religion, and that religion is going to stay intact because the, the system and the requirements of what to think, the instructions on how to live, and the process of all the things that you are to do are going to stay in there. You cannot take Christ out of Christian. If you try to take Christ out of Christian, you're going to be left with the letters I-A-N, and Ian's not going to do a whole lot for you. <laughs> wow. Um, but Jesus Christ did not come into this world to give the mind new information of God or to open up new mystical experiences about God, or to tell us ways of doing things for God. Jesus Christ came into this world as God himself. He is the substance of his own revelation. That is why Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Okay, if you have seen me, you have seen God. In John chapter 14, I'm going to read from uh, the NIV. In John chapter 14, uh, I'm going to read some verses to you that are going to seem very familiar to you. It's verses 1 through 11. That's Luke. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father, and that would be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe that I am in the father, and the father is in me? The words that I say to you are not just my own, rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is me, is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. 
Jesus came into this world and said, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. The revelation of God is found in the person of Christ. At one point, Jesus looks at a group of religious leaders and says to them, you read and study these scriptures, but these are the scriptures that talk about me. How can you not recognize me? You know, the question, who am I, is an essential question that demands an answer. But oftentimes it's something we tend to ignore as best we can because, quite honestly, for many of us, we don't necessarily like the answer. We're not necessarily happy, maybe, with who we are. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of uh, this couple that's going to be going away on vacation. So they go to the neighbor, they give them the keys to the house and said, hey, can you watch over the house while we're gone for a week? And they're like, oh yeah, that's fine. So they leave. And the neighbors are busy with life, career, etc., etc. And they basically kind of forget until the day that they're to come back. And they're like, oh man, we forgot all about it. Let's get over there. They take their dog over. They let it out in the backyard. They go in the house, water the plants and everything. It's not a big deal. Everything looks pretty good. So they're Life is good, and um, they go out into the backyard, and the dog comes walking up all proud and everything with this dead rabbit in his mouth. And they realize our neighbor has a pet rabbit in the backyard. And they look, and I mean, this is one of those big floppy-eared things. This is not a wild rabbit. They're like, oh, man. And sure enough, the hutch is open, and it's empty. So they take this rabbit out of its mouth and they go into the house and they wash it off and it's got blood on it, There's dirt. it's dirty, it looks like it's been dragged through who knows what. They're taking chunks and trying to put it back on, they're wiping and washing it off, they try to blow dry it and they put it back in the hutch and shut the door and they're like, okay, we don't know anything. You know, we, everything was fine, we've been watching the house, everything's fine, don't worry about it, we just, we, we're, we're not, we don't know anything. So they go home. A few hours later, the couple shows up. It's summer. These guys have their windows open, and they hear them come in the house, and then they hear the back door open. About a minute goes by, and they hear this really loud scream. And they're, okay. Sure enough, you know, a few minutes go by, and... Hey, glad to see you're back. Was it a good vacation? Did you have a good time? And they're like... Yeah, yeah, it, we did, we did, we had a really good thing, thanks. Um, while we were gone, did anything unusual happen over at our place? No, no, not at all, why, why do you ask? They said, well, it's the strangest thing. Just before we went on vacation, our rabbit died and we buried it in the backyard. Oh. All of us have done things we shouldn't have done. All of us have things about us that we don't want people to know about. We want it kept away from anybody else and hidden forever. The reason who am I is one of those scary questions is because it's an essential question. It's one of those questions that asks about our hearts. And if we're prepared to be honest, most of us don't want 
that kind of information. We don't want to deal with that kind of information at that level. Another interesting thing that I found out was that um, tomorrow being January 1st, well, Mary Shelley wrote a book called Frankenstein, and she published it. It, it was published on January 1st, 1818. So tomorrow, the novel Frankenstein will be 200 years old. Now, Mary Shelley was no Christian by any stretch of the imagination. And Frankenstein is not the name of the monster. Frank, Dr. Frankenstein is the name of the guy who creates a monster. But in all honesty, he doesn't do that. He creates actually a perfectly benign and peaceful being who happens to also be quite ugly. And when this creature is brought to life, it starts out very good-natured, very kind, and gentle. But as this creature observes human behavior, and as he reads and studies human history, the more cynical, violent, and cruel he becomes. And later on in the book, the doctor and his creation meet, and they talk. And mind you, this is written by an atheist. But, but the monster says, who has at this point literally become a monster in his actions and everything he does, he says, when I came into this world, I looked at the human race, and they seemed to be everything that was good, noble, and godlike. But as I look how you treat other people, and as I study your history, my admiration ceased, and I turned away in disgust and loathing. On one hand, to be a human seems to mean everything that is good, godlike, and noble. And yet, on the other hand, you seem so evil, vicious, and base. How can I reconcile these parts of the human experience? And he says, all I can conclude is this. You were created in the image of something that was perfect and you've fallen away from it. I, however, he said, was created in the image of something imperfect. Therefore, my fall will be greater and worse than yours. Most of us may not be very happy with who we are. I can tell you that simply because if you go to Barnes & Noble, there's going to be shelves and shelves of book, books on self-help books, self-help ideas. You can go to any number of secular counselors. You can even go to other religious counselors, and they're basically all going to say the same thing. Look, you're not happy with who you are, but what you really need to do is you need to do certain things, think certain things, have certain experiences. You do all these things, you're going to become the person you want to be, and you will also become the person that God wants you to be. And Jesus came into this world, and he offered to do something completely different. He offers to start off where everyone else would finish. He says that if you come unto me, you are a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. Someone asked Jesus once, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus basically said, you must be born again. Literally, your very identity must be taken and changed you must be born again a second time. The reason that Jesus is so unique is he offers to do something for us that no other system or person has ever even thought about. 
This is not one claim amongst many. This is a claim entirely by itself. There, uh, a guy, he, he just passed away not all that long ago. He was a uh, British-American neurologist in New York University School of Medicine. His name was Oliver Sacks. He was very well-known, very distinguished person in his field. Some of you may be familiar with him because he wrote a book of nonfiction called Awakenings, and you may have seen the movie. Uh, it had Robert De Niro and the late Robin Williams. Um, but the book is quite impressive. The, um, at a, early on in the book, I want to say like page 26, 27, he's, Oliver Sacks says this, All of us have a basic intuitive feeling that once we were whole and well, at ease, at home in the world, totally united with the grounds of our being, and then we lost this primal, happy, innocent state and fell into our present sickness and suffering. We had something of infinite beauty and preciousness, and we lost it. We spend the rest of our lives searching what we have lost, and one day, perhaps, we will suddenly find it. How do you like that? Hundreds of years of psychological research, hundreds of billions of dollars spent, we've gotten all the way to Genesis chapter 3. You and I were created in the image of something perfect, God himself. Some of you may be familiar with the verse that goes something to the effect that we were made little lower than the angels. The reason it's translated in that way is due to modesty. That's actually not what it says. It actually says that we were made little lower than God himself because we were made in his image, but that image has been broken, marred, damaged, through our rebellion and sin against him, we have fallen. We had something of infinite preciousness and beauty, and we have lost it. And we spend the rest of our lives, because we are aware of what we lost, we spend our lives looking for it, hoping someday we're going to find it. And it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how you think or how you feel. You're not going to be able to basically change that aspect of you. And Jesus comes and says, let me take who you are and I can make you into something new. You can be born again a second time. You can have a new identity in me. And Jesus is the only one in world history who doesn't claim some new system of belief. He is the actual subject of what he came to talk about. He claims he can take us and change our very frame of existence and to become a son or a daughter of God. Have you ever known that kind of new birth in your life? Do you know what it is like to have that kind of new birth? This is the most profound thing you can possibly imagine because literally Jesus Christ is the answer. Who he is is the answer to the question of who we are. Some of you may, well I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story just before his crucifixion of Jesus being in the garden and it talks about and describes how he was literally um, sweating blood. We used to think that that wasn't possible at one time, and then the Nazis came along and did some interesting ex experiments, and we found out if you truly terrify someone, you can actually get people to sweat blood. 
park that thought for just a second. If you were to go to England, um, there's a place called the Martyrs Memorial. It's over in the Oxford area, I believe, because at one point in time in you know, centuries past or whatever, it was decided it was kind of fun, or it would be kind of fun to burn Christians alive, burn them at the stake. And there were two guys by the name of uh, Latimer and Ridley, for example, that were, bur- and as they were literally burning, he said, one of them said, Fear not, Master Ridley, and play the man. For this day we shall light a fire in England that I trust will never be put out. In uh, the time of Rome, the Emperor Nero would uh, put Christians in an arena and let loose lions on them, and the lions would eat them. And many times, um, history records that, that Nero would get very upset because after it was over with, the Christians that still had faces still were very peaceful, some of them even smiling. Christian history is littered with martyrs who willingly and even possibly happily went to their death for their faith. Jesus Christ is sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane at the prospect of his crucifixion. What was he scared about? When Jesus came into this world and he went, into the, went to the cross, he took on into his being everything that had gone wrong in your life and in mine. All of the wrong thoughts all of the harmful experiences, all of the bad things you have done and bad things that have been done done to you, he took on into himself. The Bible says that he became sin. He literally became a curse for us. And it was the prospect of becoming a curse, becoming sin, is what struck terror into his heart. Because sometimes we think of sin as something that we do. And it's much more than something we do. If I were to ask you what it is, why it is that you sin in the first place, how would you answer that? If you were to ask me, I would probably say it's because, you know, I want to be happy. I want to be free. I don't like being, you know, I, I just want to do what I want to do. Does sin bring happiness or freedom? It brings death, bondage, misery, and destruction, and it can cut us off from God. And when Jesus became sin on the cross, he took everything that was broken and wrong into this world, into his own body. And just before his crucifixion, he took a loaf of bread, and he said, this is my body, broken for you, taking all of that hurt and judgment that was deserved onto himself. And he comes to us now, he seeks us out, And he offers us a new life in him, a new birth through him. I was asked one time, you know, what would it take to convince you out of your faith? And it wasn't until later as I thought about that question more that I realized the problem with the question. It assumes that Christianity is a state of mind. And Christianity is not a state of mind. It's a state of existence. I could no more deny my second birth to Jesus as I could deny my first birth through my parents. To become a Christian is not to enter into some abstract philosophical speculation and commit yourself to some system of thought. It's not 
to say that you're going to have some kind of mystical religious experience and maybe even get to enjoy coming to church, which for some of you may be a class A miracle in and of itself. It's not even to promise to do good things, be nice to people, and do the best you can, as noble as that may be. To become a Christian is to know who you are before God, a child of his that has fallen through rebellion and sin and stands before him broken and damaged, and then understand who Christ is, who is God, who has come to us and has offered to take in all of that brokenness onto himself and has paid the price for it and conquered over and has conquered over it and now he offers that new life in him to become a christian is to become his son or daughter and it gives you an identity that no one else can take away do you know that identity that comes from him I'm going to ask the ushers to come up and if the praise team would like to come up and we'll finish things here. But, and as that is happening, I guess I'll just end with how this whole thing starts. Who are you? There's an, there's an account in Scripture talked about where these, this group of people is watching Christians driving evil spirits out of people, and they think that's kind of neat. So they decide to try it themselves. And they, they look to a person who's in the same physical or same spiritual condition, and they tell him, you know, in the name of Jesus, who the Apostle Paul talks about, we command you to come out. And the spirit looks at him and says, I know Jesus, and I know Paul. Who are you? You know what happened next? He was beaten within an inch of his life. Are you known in heaven? In heavenly places, do they know who you are? Or is it possible this morning that you're sitting here and you are a Christian, but you've almost forsaken that identity? You once knew who you were, but because of this last year or experiences or things that have happened in your life, You've kind of fallen away from it and you've almost forsaken that identity and now you're sitting here this morning and maybe you're hopelessly confused. You need to put yourself back into his hands. If that's any of you, I would ask that you would pray with me. Actually, I would ask all of us just to take a moment here in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are, the creator who gave us life. And through your life, death, and resurrection, who offers us a second birth, a new life in you. Lord, if there is anyone here who is, who has through their lives struggled with their identity and who they are. Lord, give them the wisdom to understand that you, your answer is yes to anyone who comes to you. Because we are all broken. We have all sinned. So, we come to you now before the cross and we ask forgiveness 
and we ask for that new life. We thank you for who you are. And we ask as we enter into the new year that we follow you every day for the rest of our lives. Amen.